You're listening to the winning literary show, Off the Shelf Books Talk Radio, live with host Denise Turney, author of the books Long Walk Up, Portia, Love Pour Over Me, Spiral, Love Has Many Faces, and Rosetta's Great Hope. Turn up your dial and get ready for a blast of feature author interviews, 411 on book festivals, writing conferences, and so much more. Ready? Let's go. Your passion is waiting for your courage to catch up. And that quote is from Isabel LaFleche. Your passion is waiting for your courage to catch up. Go get it, you guys. It is February the 4th. We Already, I remember saying, oh, my God, I can't believe it's a new year. Now it's like, oh, my God, I can't believe it's February already. It's February the 4th. To our loyal listeners who've been with us 18 years, I want to thank you, thank you, thank you. To those of you, it might be your first time tuning in to Off the Shelf, I want to tell you that you absolutely are listening to the winning book podcast, Off the Shelf. And welcome to our Saturday, February the 4th, 2023 show. For those of you who do that Valentine's Day thing, you got 10 more days to hook it up. <laughs> 10 more days. I mean, it's just time just does not wait. Again, your passion is waiting for your courage to catch up. Go go get what you came here into this world to do. Now, before I introduce our, our awesome guest to you, and he's been on here before, and he's just, just such a wonderful guest, I'm asking you how good of a mystery sleuth are you? Are you one of those people who can figure out whether you're watching a real-life mystery or movies, fictional mystery, or reading a book? You always figure out who did it before it's revealed. You always know. Maybe it's a series book, and then the third book in the series, they're going to tell you who did what. You always figure it out somewhere in book two. You're just a good mystery sleuth. If you love those whodunners and trying to figure it out and you love a good mystery, and you also enjoy relationships, they're very important to you, very, very important. And not just a romantic relationship, but the relationships you have with your friends, your family, your neighbors, your colleagues. I'm telling you, you may love, love, or over me, especially, again, if you value relationships and love. And how long would you wait to experience a once-in-a-lifetime romance, the kind of romance, the kind of love that just opens you up to more love and goodness? How long would you wait? Do you think it would be worth it if if the love you that that is yours, and it's so good if it didn't come right away? And there's also a murder mystery tied into this story. If you like mystery, you value relationships, I encourage you to get a copy of Love Pour Over Me today. It's an e-book and it's in paperback. If you don't see it on the shelves, library, bookstore, all you have to do is ask the clerk to order you a copy of Love Pour Over Me by Denise Turney because it's carried by the largest book distributors in the world. I mean, that's a great book getting ready for Valentine's Day, too. I think you're going to love the ending. And now let us go and meet our very special off-the-shelf guest, and our special guest, guest this morning is Jeff Rosley, and as I said, he's been on here before, and he just has a lot of good energy, and he's a great guest. He makes his home, or he did the last time we interviewed him, which has been about three years ago, or no, about two. He makes his home in Indianapolis. His first published work was a poem which was published in the Hanover College Fine Arts Journal. He's an avid traveler. He is an avid traveler. In fact, he led in Himalayan treks and mountaineering expeditions. He scuba dived throughout the Caribbean and sea kayaked in Palo Tonga and the Greek Isles. He's also an avid social activist. He earned his bachelor's from the University of Chicago. He was a ladder winner in swimming and football. This guy just doing it all. And he has also earned a JD from Indiana University Law School. Be, when, by 2020, I know he had offered, authored over 10 books, which include 72 Wisdoms, A Pickleball Soap Opera, Light in the Mountains, America's Existential Crisis, Our Inherited Obligation to Native Americans. You have to get lost before you can be found, polarized, hero's journey, island adventures, bringing progress, progress to paradise and false profit. You can check Jeff Rosley out online at jeffrosley.com, jeffreyrosley.com, and that's spelled J-E-F-F-R-E-Y-R-A-S-L-E-Y.com. 
and again, J-E-F-F-R-E-Y-R-A-S-L-E-Y.com. We're glad to have Jeff join us back here on Off the Shelf again. Welcome to Off the Shelf, Jeff. Well, hello again, Denise. I can't believe, has it really been two or three years since we last Yeah, it, it, I want to say it was 2020. It, must, it was probably when COVID was really going strong, and uh, the last time it was 2020. And some of the questions I'm going to ask you, ask then, I'll ask again, because we had listeners who, more and more listeners coming in from around the world listening to our show. They may not have caught your first interview, but anybody who wants to catch the first one, it's in the archives. You, we've done a lot of interviews, so you have to search through for the Jeff Rossley, the other Jeff Rossley interview. But to kick it off this morning, Jeff, for people who didn't catch your other show, can you tell us um, where you grew up and what life was like for you growing up? <laughs> sure. Well, I was born in Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, uh, where my dad was in the service. Um, but then we uh, fairly soon, uh, after he was discharged, moved to Goshen, Indiana, and that's where I grew up. And when I was growing up, it was a small city, about 10,000 people, the sort of community where everybody knew everybody. Um, but it's now uh, has about 35,000 people. It, it grew uh, really rapidly in the 70s um, because the RV industry sprung up there. And so a lot of people from Appalachia moved in. And then uh, in the last couple decades, a lot of Hispanic folks have moved in to take over the um, RV jobs and related jobs. But, um, you know, when I was growing up, there wasn't a lot to do. <laughs> so uh, I played a lot of sports. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that was you know, a big part of my life. And so I played sports all through high school and then college as well. Um, then uh, I got the travel bug and actually dropped out of college after a semester, uh, worked a factory job, saved up a grand total of $65, and hitchhiked uh, all around uh, the country for about six weeks and came back home with $5 left in my pocket. So that wow. was the, <laughs> the oh first my God, in my you could great write a book just adventure. about that. You couldn't even do that today. <laughs> $65? <laughs> Oh, my yeah, goodness. Yeah. Well, that was in the early, uh, that was in 1972. So money went a lot farther back then. And people were, I think, in some ways a lot less frightened uh, to pick up hitchhikers. And I think the the nation was just, um, culture was friendlier back then. I'll put it that way. The, you know, there was the kind of the hippie, uh, peace and love ethos going around among a lot of young people. And so, uh, you know, I really didn't have that much trouble getting rides, except one time I got stuck in this little town called Pleasureville, Kentucky. And I, so I, I walked over to the city jail because I had heard that if you didn't have a place to stay, you could spend a night in a jail. I thought, oh, well, that'd be, you know, uh, <laughs> maybe a warm shower and a, and a roof over my head and a, and a bed. And so the sheriff said, well, I'll tell you what, son, uh, we can't uh, put you up in the jail, but I'll take you to my daughter's house. And she'll wow. tell you that. Now, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm starting to get some images of a uh, hot young daughter I'm going to get to spend the night with. Well, it turns out... She's a middle-aged woman with a husband who was a very large man and three little kids. And they were just so wonderful. Uh, they fed Aww. me a steak dinner, took me to their YMCA, uh, played ping pong and basketball with the kids. And the next morning, uh, she drove me out to the interstate and sent me on my way with a bag full of snacks. Wow, things were, you know, in some countries, it, 
it's still that way in some other countries. You know, the world is changing, but yeah, you could, you could. It was safer to do that years ago. Now I wouldn't try that today. <laughs> well, you're right, and that's you know, as as you know, I've spent a lot of time in the country of Nepal, and one of the things that I have so much loved about that country is up in the mountain villages, they still have this um, uh, principle or, uh, you know, part of their culture that if you're a visitor to their village, then you're an honored guest. You know, they they will feed you, put you up, um, you know, offer, even though these are, you know, poor folks that are basically just subsistence farmers, they still live by that ethic of, the stranger to their village is an honored guest. And so that's what, uh, one of the things that kept me coming back over and over to Nepal, which I've, you know, written a couple books about. Now I got it. You you've done so many things. This next question, and I know you answered before, but I don't remember what you answered. This one is very interesting. So when you were a little boy growing up in Goshen, Indiana, a town of 10,000, what did you dream about being when you grew up? Um, well, when I was a little kid, I think I dreamed about being an NFL football player. Oh, okay. uh, as as I got older, uh, say like ten, twelve, I dreamed about being a soldier. And when I got older than that, like as a, a teenager. I dreamed about being a rock star. Uh, when I got into college, I didn't really, I think I'd lost sort of that childish kind of dreamy attitude about what I want to do when I grow up. But I was pretty sure I either wanted to become a psychologist or a lawyer. And so what determined my decision to go to law school instead of uh, pursue a degree in psychology was um, the dean at the University of Chicago set up an interview for me with a practicing uh, clinical psychologist. So I had this really nice talk with the guy and, and, you know, he made his work sound pretty interesting. So at the end of the interview, I said, so, you know, do you really like your job? And he paused and kind of looked up at the ceiling and glanced around and then looked right into my eyes and he said, I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine every day of your life listening to other people's troubles? On and on, whining and bitching and moaning and every day, every week, every month, every year. That's what I do. <laughs> so I, said, I wanted to scream and run out of this office. Oh but uh, so I thought, oh, yeah, okay, I, I, think, I think I'll try law. <laughs> wow. You know what, that honesty, and I've heard other people tell me, and that happened to me at a job I had applied for, I think it's really a blessing when people tell you a, a guy who became a very senior leader at a corporation, he said he almost got stuck in a department at that company, but all the people who had been there 10 or more years, they're like, get out of here, get out of here. <laughs> if you're going to get stuck, and, you, and you, will be, you will have put in 10 or more years, so you'll figure, well, why not keep going, and you'll, be, you'll just be stuck. They said, get out of here, get out of here. And he said he's so grateful that they were honest and told him that. Now, you wanted, it's interesting, I love how you did that. You wanted to be a football player, and then you wanted to be a, 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 a soldier, then you wanted to be like an attorney, a rock star, and then on and on, and you went as you got older. What inspired you to pursue writing books? Hmm, yeah, well, I I grew up in a, a family of journalists, my uh, grandfather was the editor of the Goshen News, our local paper, who was succeeded by my stepfather. My mother was a journalist, reporter, then became the city editor of the paper, and she also had a column uh, in a statewide magazine. 
And then I married. <laughs> My wife was a writer at her first novel published at the age of 21, and she became an English professor and uh, still works at the writing center at uh, Ivy Tech part-time. And so I spent my entire life, and my brother <laughs> is the editor of a political newsletter. Um, so I spent my entire life around other people who write. And I, I enjoyed writing. I mean, English and literature were uh, probably my favorite, and history too, but probably my favorite classes uh, in high school and junior high and um, in college. Uh, as you mentioned, I had I actually had a few poems published in the Hanover College Fine Arts magazine, and then for my uh, BA paper, my capstone paper as an undergrad, instead of writing a research, you know, thesis footnoted sort of paper, I got permission uh, to write a novel, and so I wrote the first half of a novel, which I never finished, but <laughs> that was my first extended um, literary effort. And then while I was practicing law, I would I did a lot of traveling, and I would often write articles about my travel adventures, which kind of fell into a genre of spiritual adventure travel. And I also wrote a number of legal articles. So, you know, I was writing articles regularly throughout um, my legal career, but there, there really wasn't time with, uh, you know, running a law firm and raising two kids and uh, doing a lot of other things to write a full book. So my last year of practicing law, I cut way back and uh, started writing my first full-length book, which then got published uh, the year after uh, my retirement, and then who, who was the, wrote another was the and then that, another. Who was the title of that book, Jeff? Uh, it was uh, Bringing Progress to Paradise, What I Got from Giving to a Mountain Village. Okay. Now, at your website, you have links to articles about your travels, are you still traveling as much today uh, as you used to? No, I'm not. Um, I was going to go back to Nepal. In fact, we had our, a foundation that I'm the president of called the Basa Village Foundation. We had a, a, a trek planned with a, a number of our members, um, and then COVID hit. Um, and so... Then I have come to, well, I've just come to really dread flying. I just uh, I really hate flying anymore. And I've, I've, you know, I've flown domestically uh, since COVID a uh, number of places, but I just uh, can't bring myself to spend 30 hours in airports and on airplanes to go back to Nepal. And I really don't need to because we have uh, one of our uh, directors uh, leads a track every year, um, and she's continuing to do that. And we have other members of the foundation uh, that go back to check on our projects. So if I if I ever make that journey. Um, of 30 hours <laughs> flying wow. uh, one way again. I'm I'm gonna have to get over this this uh, real animus I've developed to flying. It's interesting that it's interesting how we change. Even when I was asking you, what did you want to be when you grew up? And the different ages, you wanted to be something different. It's it's amazing, and that you you give yourself the freedom the freedom to change. Now, what's, what's included, uh, you said you have other team members who still take the, the trip to Nepal that, oh, my God, 30 hours one way, there's no way I could do that. But what's included in your trekking, your travel, your mountaineering expedition, the planning and the actual, what do the members 
what do they gain? Do they do they learn? Like I see YouTube shows on bushcraft and how to live off the earth and make your own uh, forks and spoons and putting up tents and how to start your own fires and finding water sources. What do what do they, your members learn when they um, as part of your your travel program? Yeah, it, it really depends. Um, I mean, we design tracks and expeditions. Uh, you know, based on what the the trekker and or the climber wants to experience. So there's the sort of the extreme climber type who want to go, you know, really have a a challenging physical experience um, where they're going to carry all their own gear. Um, they're going to build fire, sleep a tent, uh, you know, really rough it. And then there's the people who want to track in sort of the style that British aristocrats established, where <clears throat> porters carry all the heavy stuff. All you carry oh. is a light backpack. <laughs> uh, if you if you stay in a tent, the uh, porters uh, put up the tent for you. You have a oh. professional cook who cooks absolutely fabulous meals. Um, feeds you three big meals a day, plus you'll have a morning <laughs> and a mid-afternoon coffee, tea break. So you'll, it's still physically challenging in the sense that you're trekking through uh, high-altitude country, and the trails are up and down, and you have to be uh, still uh, pretty fit to do a trek. You just don't have to carry a heavy load and you don't have to cook food for yourself or put up a tent, anything like that. And and on the, the most popular trails in Nepal now, there are lodges uh, all along the trail, so you don't even have to uh, sleep in a tent. Uh, you can stay in a lodge, and most of the lodges now have running water and electricity and sort of the basic amenities that you'd have in a motel uh here in the u.s wow you, you how long still, are these, you would, oh my god sounds so interesting how long is it <laughs> is it so if somebody signed up for a trek how long is how long is it a yeah week, it, it, yeah generally you would be on the trail a minimum of a week um and some are for as long as three weeks so it just, you know, depends on where you're going, how far you're going to get. <clears throat> and all that is, is planned out before, you know, before you board a plane. Wow. Oh, my goodness. Now, introduce us. I could talk about these, uh, this alone, and I'm sure there are people who are so interested in this outdoors. They could just talk about this forever. Introduce us, though, to your book, 72 Wisdoms. Is this your latest book, and can you give us a brief synopsis of it? Yeah, um, it was published uh, at the very end of October, so it's been out a couple months. And what it is, is it's 72 um, fairly short chapters. Each one is introduced with a quote, what I call a wisdom quote, and then I take that quote and describe uh, who who originated it, what it was written or said, uh, and then what was the context, um, what have other people made uh, about that wisdom, and then what can I what can I add to it if I sort of try to plumb the depths of what that person this wise person was trying to tell us. Um, and so the 72 uh, cover just about every kind of issue that, you know, good, decent, thinking, caring people uh, care about or concerned about in their life journey. So it covers everything from, you know, when you're going to have a, a your first child born to when you are facing death and so the sort of all of the cares and concerns the big issues that we face in life are covered but even and and by that I mean everything from like a 
said, you know, uh, facing death, to how do you deal with an annoying friend? Um, so that's, uh, you know, 72 of those. Uh, each chapter uh, takes on a different issue. Is it is it is there any type of it that's a workbook where the reader can fill in some of their thoughts around the topic that this wisdom or quote is about, <clears throat> or is it just a book where they read? It's not a, like there's nothing where the author is. It's they're also inputting the, uh, what they're getting out of the book, uh, like yeah, a workbook yeah. in part. Yeah, excellent question, Denise. Um, each chapter has questions in it. So it's not a it's not a workbook in the sense that you could write in the book or that there's space in the book to write, but uh, every chapter uh, either has questions within the body or at the end of the chapter, and that's yeah that's exactly that was my intent for the reader to try to think even more deeply. Okay, so here's what you know here's what this wise person had to say. Here's what. Raisley has to say about, and now here's some questions for you to try to think even further about this issue. Now, did you do any research or any interviews? Are there any quotes from anybody who's still on this side that you interviewed them and got more in-depth of why they came up with the quote, or did you do research when you were putting together your book, 72 Wisdoms? Yeah, I did a lot of research. Um, every chapter required at least some amount of research. Uh, I didn't interview anyone, but uh, quite a few of the quotes are from people that are still walking this earth. Um, for example, Dolly Parton is one of them. Uh, there's a okay. couple uh, artists um and writers that are not that well known um, that are are quoted. Um, there's a, a, a number of people that have died within the last uh, few years, um, and then there there are very ancient sources. Um, well, uh, another person living is the Dalai Lama. Uh, he's has one of the quotes, um, and then ancient. Uh, sages uh, going back to the ancient Greeks to uh, Tibetan uh, like Lao Tzu um, yeah so really all throughout uh, the history I mean when you have 72 that's a lot to work with and then within many of the chapters there are also other uh, wisdom quotes so that you know this particular um, wisdom led to another and then that one led to another so some of them there's a chain of uh wisdoms that you know that i provide for the reader what have readers been since it came out in october so what have readers been you hear what have you been hearing from readers so far about the book 72 wisdoms <clears throat> well um so far, all of the reviews that have been posted have been five stars, so, you know, that's encouraging. Um, I've had a few friends that have read the book, you know, contact me and respond to it. And one of, one of the most interesting ones was uh, I attend a, a Quaker meeting, and uh, the the pastor, uh, Pastor Bob, <coughs> as he's known, uh, told me that he got the book and he's using it as a meditation so that oh. each week he reads one chapter and then sort of meditates uh, on that, the wisdom within that chapter. And another friend uh, emailed me from Florida and he said, uh, you know, I don't really think... I don't really think of a book like this as a good beach read because uh, I, you know, tend to think of a beach read as like a light novel, you know, light fiction. He said, but this is really good for the beach because uh, the chapters are short enough that I can read one chapter and then just uh, lie in the sand. So, okay. yeah, so that's two, two different, very different reactions to it. Yeah, but they're getting something for them. 
from the book, which is, I think, always rewarding as an author. And that for our listeners, that's 72 Wisdoms, 72 Wisdoms by Jeff Rosley. Now, to talk about some of your other books, and you've written so many, can you give us a, a glimpse of the hero's journey? John Ritter, and is this the actor you're talking about? John, hero's journey, John Ritter, the Chip Hilton of Goshen, Indiana, a memoir. Is this the actor who was on Three's Company? No, it's not. Uh, it, although I've gotten that <clears throat> question a number of times, so you know he's he's the famous person with that name. <clears throat> but the John Ritter that this book is about was the greatest athlete from Goshen, Indiana, and he was uh, briefly famous um, as a basketball star. He was uh, the star of uh, the Indiana University basketball team when Bobby Knight first uh, went to IU as the coach, and he was John was co-captain of the team uh, that went to the Final Four. Unfortunately, ran in in the semifinal game, ran into the undefeated Bill Walton uh, uh, UCLA. Bruins, coached by John Wooden, who won seven NCAA titles in a row. But um, John was this amazingly talented athlete from my hometown, and he was a few years older than me. But so I, you know, admired this older kid who could just seem to, he was the best at every sport, plus he was a straight-A student. He was just a really good person. Um, you know, good in every single way. I mean, just <laughs> the perfect kid. And then, you know, he goes to IU and has this really uh, great basketball career. He's drafted by the Indiana Pacers and the Cleveland Cavaliers. Oh. But he doesn't make it in the NBA. It turns out as as good as he was in high school and college, and he still holds uh, several uh records for our high school, for Goshen High School, all these many decades later. But um, so, you know, that's sort of, that's the difference between a really good basketball player in college and high school and the incredibly good basketball players in the NBA. But he became a coach for a while, and then he uh, he got a great job with the, the largest company uh, in Indiana, which is Eli Lilly Pharmaceutical Companies. He's on the fast track to become a vice president. <clears throat> and then all of a sudden, he disappears. Oh. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and, yeah, so he just he disappears. And uh, years later, a friend of mine calls me up. And he says, you won't believe who I just met last night. Okay, who? He says, I'm getting a taxi cab out at the airport, and there's this huge guy that's a driver. He's really tall, and he looks like he weighs 300 pounds, and he's bald. And and I see on the, the card, his name is John Ritter. Well, this friend of mine, Played bas- actually played basketball against John in high school. He was from South Bend and one of our rivals. And uh, so he says, uh, you know, you're not the basketball. And turns out John had become uh, a homeless alcoholic oh. living in a taxi cab. And so this so intrigued me that how could this have happened to, you know, the golden boy of my hometown. So eventually I decided I wanted to, you know, track him down, interview him, uh, maybe write an article about it. And uh, I I was able to track him down and talk to him. And by the time I, I got around to this, because this was several years later, John had actually sort of pulled himself back together he had a regular uh-huh. job. Um, 
he he had been when he disappeared there he was also divorced and hadn't had any contact with his family but he was trying to reestablish you know contact with his with his kids um and uh so his you know life wasn't as bad as it had been but um he was still i could tell from our talks on the phone you know kind of a damaged person but uh he did talk with me but he refused to give me a formal interview so i contacted uh old teammates of his coaches of his dug up articles uh about him and did all this research um and you know trying to establish why you know what had happened that yeah. led to his demise and <clears throat> and <clears throat> what was really interesting to me was that his life journey followed the sort of the archetypal hero's journey of uh you know starting out as a young hero who has these conquests but then something happens and he falls into a pit of darkness and then has to work his way out and comes out of it as an older wiser man who can now serve as a mentor wow. to younger people and that's exactly what happened in fact John's boss he John became the manager of a ticket selling agency and John's boss was a much younger man who saw John scalping tickets outside of the Indiana University assembly hall where the where the basketball team plays and this young guy you know comes up to him and says you're John Ritter and he says yeah you know and kind of shamefaced and says yeah well i'm trying to start this company would wow. instead of scalping tickets out here would you be willing to work for me and so and John really became this younger guy's mentor and um oh my goodness yeah so there it is oh you this is now it's like I got to get this book do you when you, do you just talk about his glory days and hero's journey or do you cover the whole spectrum I cover the whole spectrum right up and to uh what he's doing today. Wow. And I go back and I uh I start with with my first encounter with him when I was playing in little league baseball and John was um umpiring, you know, um as the older kid umpiring for the little kids. And I had this great game and I, you know, I pitched a two-hitter and hit a home run and after the game he comes up and he put his arm around me and you know, says like "Razley, that was a great game." And I'm like, <laughs> "I am in seventh heaven. Oh my god, John Ritter <laughs> congratulated me." Wow. And so, you know, that's the sort of the effect he had on younger kids and teammates. Um and then you know to have gone from that but he there was a real there was a tragic incident he was involved in when he was in college which was very difficult for him and then Bobby Knight this great coach was really a, a terrible taskmaster in a lot of ways and so even though on the outside everything looked perfect for John there were signs of trouble plus he had this very overbearing father who came uh, and watched every practice every game and then oh wouldn't let John go out and hang out with the other kids after practice and so yeah the perfect exterior wasn't so perfect mm. on the interior that is so <laughs> hard to imagine when you see people it, when you get to know people and they open up and tell you their story it's like you know, there's no the exterior and the interior never perfectly match. I don't think for anybody, but some is so strikingly different that you're in a state of shock when you hear the person tell you what was really going on. Now to ask you about 
another book. This is about you. So you're going from John Ritter, 72 Wisdoms to John Ritter, a, a child. And that book sounds so intriguing. To uh, and 72 Wisdoms enlightening to another book about a big event. It's a big event nationally, and I don't know if it's beyond the United States, but Sturgis. I've heard of that. For anybody who loves motorcycles, I'm not a motorcycle person. My dad had a bike, but that, when you say Sturgis, so you wrote Pilgrimage Sturgis to Wounded Knee and Back Home Again. Is this, it's a memoir. What inspired you to write this? Was there something that happened at Sturgis? Did you go, were you in the motorcycles, and you went there and something happened? Yeah, and actually... Uh, that that book itself is kind of, is a, a weird little story. I unpublished that book and uh, have wrapped it into um, uh, another book that came out just two years ago, actually less than two years ago, called America's Existential Crisis: Our Inherited Obligation to Native Nations, but. So the story behind the first book, which leads to the second, was I um, going out to Sturgis, the big motorcycle rally, <clears throat> but my I had been in a motorcycle wreck, and my, my Harley was wrecked. So uh, this crew of guys from Indianapolis I was going to ride with, instead, I said, well, tell you what, I'll just, I'll drive out and you know, I'll meet you out there. And they were supposed to get there before me. So I'm I'm just going to drive out there. Well, the road trip by myself <laughs> turned into a very interesting adventure. Um, but I, I never found my friends. Uh, there oh. was, you know, 900,000 bikers oh, yeah. in Sturgis. And so I spent a day wandering around, trying to find them. They weren't at the campsite where they were supposed to be, or at least I couldn't find them there. And uh, I was getting really sort of bummed out by the whole scene. Um, it was, in a lot of ways, just kind of grotesque with people getting drunk and high and women <laughs> riding around half naked or completely naked and uh you know, not that I minded that view, but it just was, you know, ex the party extreme biker scene, and uh, I just couldn't get into it. So I decided, well, I'll just keep going west. I'm just going to drive on by myself, and I have a, a friend who lives at the very far west end of Montana, and uh, I thought, well, I'll go visit her, and I've always wanted to see Glacier National Park, and uh, I'll go check that out. <clears throat> but um, starting to drive across Montana, uh, I started feeling kind of lonely because I've you know, been basically by myself now for over a week, even though there's all these people around. And so I stopped in this um, restaurant, and I'm looking at a map, and I'm thinking, okay, where should I go? And wounded knee catches my eye. And one of the reasons it caught my eye is because I have an ancestor who was a lieutenant in the 7th U.S. Cavalry in the battle or massacre of wounded knee who, was, who left a letter and was interviewed by Harper's Weekly, and so we have a letter from him, an interview uh, from him, um, which my mom had recovered and written an article about. And then he died. Uh, he got shot the day after the Battle of Wounded Knee, which, in which 300 or more um, Sioux Indians, women and children mostly, were slaughtered by the cavalrymen. But he, he was in this mopping up um, uh, campaign to run down any Indians that escaped and either shoot them or force them back onto the reservation. And he got shot, lingered 
for two weeks before he died. So he was able to write this letter, do this interview. And I thought, well, it'd be really interesting to go visit the, the scene, the battlefield or the massacre site. And um, I'd never been on the Pine Ridge or Rosebud reservations. And I thought that'd be interesting. So I spent a couple days um driving around, meeting people on the inter- on the reservation, going to the uh, site of uh, Wounded Knee, where there was a, a museum there, interviewing the woman who ran it, which was called the American Indian uh, Movement Center, um, and <coughs> was uh, inspired to write a, an e-book, a kind of a short e-book, about that experience with the, you know, the road trip and the history of my ancestor. Um, but more recently, what occurred to me and became the second book was that I had another ancestor uh, who has the <laughs> delightful name of Valentine Berkey, appropriate for this time of the year, um, who was a great friend of the Potawatomi Indians in northern Indiana and had helped them survive a terrible winter. Uh, He owned a hardware store and uh, a timber mill, and many of the Indians had become friends of his, were customers of his, and so he gave them supplies and loaned them uh, supplies and things, helped them through this winter, and they gave him a beautiful deerskin beaded vest as a token of their appreciation. And that vest was handed down um, five generations to me. And so I had this vest. And uh, so I you know, ran down that story as well and decided to write a book about these two contrasting lives of these ancestors of mine uh, one was an Indian fighter whose professional life was devoted to keeping Indians um, on the reservation and killing them if they <laughs> if they left and refused to go back, like at Wounded Knee, and the other who had this you know wonderful uh, friendly relations with uh, his neighbors and. So that led me into researching the state of uh, and, and the poverty, the extreme poverty I'd seen uh, on the reservations um, really moved me. And so I uh, wrote a book about the, the whole history of the how the reservation system had come to be um, and what I think should be done uh, to correct it and to help develop uh, native communities, and so that's the, that uh, latter book. The wow! Oh my gosh! Yeah, I've heard people say that the it's just oh so sad. A people that were thriving, and the, the earth was definitely treated a lot better. Um, it was just yep. it, it's just it's. Um, I don't know, and then and then what drove a lot of things from that to slavery on, you know, and there's still slavery mm-hmm. in the world in different forms, but greed is just this thing of let me get you out of the way. It's like companies, how they buy each other up is so, like I don't care if you have to lay a lot of people off to buy you up. I'm not going to have competition. I have to be king or queen of the mountain. And and then whatever drives that in a human, it's never satisfied. It never says enough. So it never it just it, it become that's when it becomes abusive because it's never this thing is never satisfied. Whatever it is, and and some of us it never says I'm okay. I'm satisfied. I've I've got enough, and the point never comes. Now you you have also written and published like. Uh, other books and then your your mem- your memoirs. I wanted to ask you, what are the advantages and the challenges of writing a memoir? Would you say writing a memoir is easier than writing a novel, like your book, The Pickle Bar Soap Opera, which is a novel? Is it easier? Is it more challenging because you're digging up stuff from within yourself? 
Um, I find memoir writing easier uh, because in a novel you have to create a completely fictional world. Um, you know, you've got to, of course, you can you base it on uh, experiences you've had or base it on real situations and real communities and real people. But uh, it, it can't just be, you know, a factual description. So that, you know, it's, it's a work of imagination, whereas a memoir is really is a work of trying to tell your truth, you know, going back over uh, your experiences and facts and data and putting it together into a narrative that hopefully is interesting, inspiring, you know, whatever it is you want your reader to get out of this um, book that is based primarily on your own experience. Um, and I, I've taught a, a memoir class uh, for actually, gosh, probably off and on for 15 years or so at the Indiana Writers Center. Um, and so I, I have you know, kind of developed a, uh, an outline of how to think about you know, not exactly how to write a memoir, but how to think about um, creating a memoir. Um, whereas in fiction writing, I still I consider myself much more still a, a student of the art uh, who has a lot to learn. Um, my wife is a much more accomplished fiction writer than I am and probably than I'll ever be. But, you know, the delight in, in fiction writing is that you know, just hopefully letting your imagination run off in this direction that other people will want to join in that journey. Whereas memoir writing is, you know, taking people through a journey you've actually had. Ah, okay, okay. Interesting. I always would think a memoir or autobiography would be harder because you're dealing with things that you might not really want to deal with. Uh, but a memoir can be more focused, I guess. I always would imagine it would be harder than working with fiction or, or make-believe. Now, as we come down to, like, the end of today's show, uh, Jeff, can you share for our listeners who themselves may be writers and they're looking for ways to uh, expand their readership, introduce their books to more and more people, can you share three to four steps that you have taken that that you found personally to be effective at getting the word out about your books yeah um i i can't say that i feel like i've you know developed um any technique that's um you know unique uh or original to me uh i've tried to use social media um responsibly not you know <laughs> uh just overwhelming uh, friends, followers, w with constantly saying, you know, please buy my book, please buy my book, um, which I think is very tempting to newbie uh, authors. But, um, you know, tried to use social media where I developed a uh, following, and uh, the three that I've used are uh, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn um, by posting things that I, I hope are just of general interest to people and then occasionally mentioning uh, a book or relating a book I've written to to um, some other interesting event that's going on. Um, and then I, I've tried, I've experimented with buying ads on uh, the okay. different platforms. Uh, and I really have not uh, been satisfied with the results of ads, I mean, I've tried Amazon, Twitter, Facebook, Google, uh, and, and uh, BookBub. <coughs> BookBub, I think, is the best in terms of the results I've had and, and from what other authors that are really more sophisticated about marketing than I am. Um, so that's the the platform I'd recommend um younger or newer authors uh, try out first. 
but you know, I know other a good friend of mine um, who is a historical uh, writer, a historical fiction, has had great success with Facebook ads, though, oh. you know, which never really worked well for me. And then I, I think it's important to have a website uh, and uh, to have an author page in Amazon. I mean, just this you know, sort of a, a locus uh, venue where people can find all your books in, in one place uh, and hopefully says something about you that uh, readers might find interesting. Um, and that's, well, <laughs> the other thing is doing this, uh, you know, being the, the guest very gratefully, having the opportunity um, to be hosted by wonderful podcasters like you, Denise, that give authors the opportunity to, um, you know, promote their books and let your listeners know about uh, the books I've written. And I've been on a lot of podcasts and radio shows and even a couple of TV shows over the several decades now that I've been writing and publishing. So, uh, and I used to give uh, talks to civic groups and church groups um, because combining um, writing with traveling with uh, the BASA Foundation is sort of this triple combination that people find interesting. Um, and I've always you know, tried to promote the BASA Foundation to groups that wanted to hear me talk, but the COVID ended that. So, um, you know, that'll that may start up again. Yeah, um, hopefully it'll pick back up again. You're a great guest, and you're very <laughs> engaging, so I can see where somebody went. And you've traveled so much. You've traveled so much, which gives you so much rich material to share with people and put them in there that, that wow that wow moment where you tell them about different things on your travels. Um, so I can see where you'd be a great, great uh, public speaker. As we come down to a close, where can off-the-shelf listeners get a copy of your books, Jeff? Well, like I said, uh, I have a page on Amazon, so they can go to Amazon and just type in my name or the last one, type in 72 Wisdoms. Uh, and then you already mentioned my website, my full name, Jeffrey, J-E-F-F-R-E-Y, uh, Rasley, R-A-S-L-E-Y, dot com. Um, all my books are listed there along with information about the BASA Foundation and about uh, how to go trekking in Nepal. What is, can you say it, can you spell it, the BASA Foundation? How does that spell? B A S A. Okay. Basa, and that's that's the name of the main village in this particular remote area of Nepal. Oh, okay. The Basa Foundation. Thank you for it. Jeff, Jeff, Jeff. Jeff Rosley, I hope I said his last name correctly. Oh, this, he's just such a wonderful, wonderful guest. The Traveling. And that book on John Ritter, I thought that was the actor. That book is, oh, it sounds so so intriguing. His latest book, you guys, 72 Wisdoms. So if you want to, like, read something enlightening, maybe something stirs something within you, I encourage you to pick up a copy of 72 Wisdoms. He's also written a pickleball soap opera. We didn't get to that today. Lighten the Mountains, America's Existential Crises, Our Inherited Obligation to Native Americans. You have to get lost before you can be found. Polarized. We talked about Hero's Journey, Island Adventures, Bringing Progress to Paradise and False Prophet, and so many more. And you can check him out online at Jeffrey Rosley, J-E-F-F-R-E-Y-R-A-S-L-E-Y.com. Thank you so much, Jeff, for another uh, just wonderful show. Last time he told us about looking into the eye of a whale, if I remember correctly, and I, I don't know if it was you or another guest got lost up in the mountains, just so many other things. So check his other interview out on the, in the archives. And then when this one's finished the streaming, you can listen to it and share it with your friends, people who love to travel. People just love to to, to read uh, and keep up with Jeff Rosley at his 
our website. To our listeners, thank you for being here with us again on Off the Shelf. Please mark your calendar Saturday morning, 11 a.m. Eastern Eastern Standard Time. You're going to tune in to Off the Shelf to catch these great guests like Jeff Rosley. And as I always tell you, remember, you are so incredible. You are amazing. You are phenomenal. Go out and create a fabulous day for yourself. Jeff, I'll shoot you an email when the show finishes streaming. Thank you so much. Bye for now. Thank you and so much to Denise. Really appreciate it. Thank you, thank you. <laughs>